Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jay Rosen returns from his travels and travails to join me again as co-host on this episode of This Week in FCPA. Some of the stories we're looking at include ESG and compliance. Mike Volkoff focuses on the G in ESG. How and why you should ask more of your auditors. Neil Hodge in Compliance Week. ISO weighs in on good governance standards. Dylan Tokar in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, regulating the wild west of cryptocurrencies. Henry Kronk in CCI. Is Mozambique going to seek countenance or prosecution of its president's corruption? Rick Messick explores in the Global Anti-Corruption blog, making the most of your risk assessment. Jeff Kaplan appears in the FCPA blog. What is a criminal conflict of interest? Sarah Croft explains in Grand Jury Target. Revisiting whistleblower procedures in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governments. The SEC investigation into activism. Jay reflects on SCCE, podcast, events, and more. All on the Heading to October edition of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 270 for the week ending September 24, 2021, the heading for October, parentheses, magic number three, end parentheses edition. Uh, For those of you not watching on video, which unfortunately is everyone, Uh, You are missing the portrait of Jay Rosen on my computer screen as he has returned from his travels to report on the first compliance conference since 2019. And we're here to unpack some of the stories which caught our collective eye on the heading to October parentheses, magic number three, end parentheses edition. Jay, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. It was uh, great to get the tribe back together, and I look forward to giving a little update in a bit. But why don't we jump in and tell us about ESG and compliance? Well, uh, Jay, I think our colleague Mike Volkoff has had a Damascene moment when it comes to ESG because he's now fully on board that compliance needs to lead the ESG effort. And he focuses on the G, uh, rightly so, because uh, compliance uh is in charge of institutional justice and institutional fairness, and that's directly within the S part 
of ESG and the G part. So uh, Mike really advocates that compliance is now well suited to uh, lead uh, the corporate ESG effort, uh, in large part because it's what we do every day, Jay. Uh, I also wrote a five-part blog post series uh, this week. Our colleague Stephen Martin over at Stone Turn developed a five-pronged framework uh, to think through uh, ESG program, and I wrote about the prongs of that uh, each day this week, and it really lays out, hopefully for the compliance practitioner, but also any ESG practitioner, how to think through the design creation, implementation, and most important, the running of an ESG program. So uh, I took a look at uh, materiality assessments, uh, policies and procedures, uh, monitoring and verification, reporting. And today I concluded with um, enhancements and responses, which for the compliance practitioner, you would translate that into continuous monitoring. So uh, take a look at my five-part series. Um, for those who have not noticed, I have migrated my blog site, and it's now a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. You'll see the blog tab at, tag at the part, top rather, uh, so tabs. So check that out and uh, subscribe to uh, that site uh, instead of my old site. So uh, lots around ESG, lots around ESG and compliance, and it continues to be uh, a leading topic of compliance professionals, and I'm sure you'll touch on that in your uh, remarks about uh, the recent compliance conference. But, uh, Jay, it looks like you almost had a a visitor. Uh, Unfortunately, it looks like they've closed the door. Nevertheless, uh, should you ask more of your auditors? Thanks, Tom. Uh, That is Latka the Wonder Dog who did make it in. So we'll see if he uh, gives us any approving barks on any of the stories. Uh, we're going to go to our colleague, Neil Hodge, who's writing in Compliance Week. Unfortunately, it's behind the firewall, but if you have a, a subscription, you should check it out. And uh, Neil's looking at big four miscaps in the UK, which underscore the need to challenge auditors. Wang Ying, Director of Fraud Investigator for Forensic Risk Alliance, says, while there should be a presumption of trust between companies and their auditors, Companies can and most definitely should challenge their auditors throughout the process. The audit committee and the board would know the business best and should challenge auditors' opinions and findings or lack thereof where appropriate. The better the auditors understand the company, the better the quality of their audit. To ensure responsibilities are properly discharged, audit committees and boards should engage with their auditors more fully and ask whether they understand the changes to their business. Crucially, boards and audit committees should quiz auditors about whether they have applied appropriate professional skepticism throughout the audit, particularly in challenging the information provided by management. The audit profession has been rocked in the UK after a spate of high-profile frauds and corporate collapses exposed not only dire boardroom governance, but shockingly bad audit work too. In August, the Financial Reporting Council, FRC, fined Ernst & Young $3 million for failings related to 2017 audits of international transport company Stagecoach Group. And earlier this month, the regulators issued KPMG a formal complaint for allegedly providing false information in its audits of failed infrastructure company Carillion and software maker Regenesis. 
Last year, Deloitte was fined $9.4 million for its failed audit of software form firm Autonomy, a record at the time, and other regulatory investigations into shoddy audit work are ongoing. Currently, Grant Thornton is in discussions to reach a settlement with the FRC regarding its audit of cafe chain Patisserie Valerie, while PwC's work at Wylands Bank is also under scrutiny for close links to the recently collapsed Greensill Capital. While recent scandals have flagged failings in terms of poor audit quality and lack of skepticism, the responsibility of management for the failure of the company should not be overlooked. There is a case to argue for auditors in certain audits exercising more skepticism, but the board is ultimately responsible for running the company and for producing the company's financial statements. Financial mismanagement in a company is often the root cause of corporate collapse. Although a properly performed audit should be able to identify if the accounts are true and fair, corporate collapses do not fall solely to the responsibility of the company's auditors. While more rigorous audit standards, as well as tougher sanctions, might help prevent corporate governance scandals, there also needs to be a focus on better corporate reporting, better enforcement of disclosure rules, and more accountability. Finally, Thomas Catti, head of the white-collar crime firm, excuse me, white-collar crime at law firm Gerson Solicitors, believes the combination of increased onus on directors, better auditing training, and better use of technology should improve audit quality, as well as clarify the duties of the auditor and board. Such changes will hopefully ensure that the audit profession can be seen in a much more positive light in the UK. Tom, what does our good friend Dylan Tokar have to say in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal? Jay, uh, the international standards setter ISO has waded into the corporate governance debate by uh, laying out some common requirements for uh, governance benchmarking. This is unique because it represents an outcome of a consensus-driven process uh, involving more than 70 companies. Uh, I think most compliance professionals are aware of ISO in 3701. They should be uh, aware that ISO also sets a wide variety of other standards, literally from uh, what should be on your dashboard of your car, to health and safety standards, to standards around process management. They're one of the most well-respected international organizations around. And although uh, I don't find uh, 3701 to be uh, particularly useful for the compliance professional, uh, I do welcome these new uh, governance standards. It's not something typically that we've seen around benchmarking for good governance. So, uh, Every compliance professional needs to uh, take a look at these, see if your company is using them. And I think the ESG discussion, they're going to be particularly appropriate as uh, setting a benchmark or minimum standards for you to follow. So uh, a little more clarity, perhaps, around uh, corporate governance, Jay. Jay, what's going on in the wild world or wild west, rather, of crypto? Thanks for asking. We're going to check in with our friend Henry Kronk over at Corporate Compliance Insights. Cryptocurrencies, as we know them today, were initially conceived as a means by which individuals or business entities could free themselves from hectic or disadvantaged federal monetary policies. But increasingly, the same government that in parts inspired the creation through its regulatory failures is now looking to bring these wild horses to heel. SEC Chairman Gary Gensler, who previously researched 
and lectured on digital currencies at the MIT Sloan School of Management, has led the regulation charge. If you want to invest in a digital scarce speculative store of value, that's fine, he said during a speech at the Aspen Security Summit in August. Good faith actors have been speculating on the value of gold and silver for thousands of years. Right now, we just don't have enough investor protection in crypto. Frankly, at this time, it's more like the Wild West. In the same speech, Gensler described digital coins as rife with fraud, scams, and abuse. And Corporate Compliance Insights has reached out to three cryptocurrency experts for a forecast as to what they see coming next. First off, they spoke with Nick Morgan, currently a partner at Paul Hastings, who previously worked as a senior trial counsel at the SEC Enforcement Division. Nick believes that the SEC Chair Gensler's most recent comments on the same subject have some people scratching their heads. If crypto is the Wild West, some fear that Chair Gensler appears to launch a regulatory land grab. His comments were alarming enough that a commissioner from the CFTC, the agency Gensler formerly chaired, tweeted, just so we're all clear here, the SEC has no authority over pure commodities or their trading venues, whether those commodities are wheat, gold, oil, or crypto aspects, assets rather. Given Gensler's deep knowledge of crypto, he could have described technical aspects that would have caused a digital asset to fall outside the definition of a security. Instead, he appeared headed the opposite direction. In his speech, Gensler may have inadvertently suggested where the SEC jurisdictional limits may ultimately be determined, he, said, he noted that over the years, the SEC has brought dozens of actions in this area, prioritizing token-related cases involving fraud or other harm to investors. Even, in even if Chair Gessler's SEC won't recognize limitations on its jurisdiction over digital assets, a court might. Next up, Hogan Lovell's partner, Aaron Cutler, has, who has advised former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor on issues of policy and outreach, he believes that crypto regulation is entering a new territory. The entire cryptocurrency industry is waking up to a new reality. Politicians and regulators have decided to wade into cryptocurrencies, which until now had largely flown under the radar. Last week, a handful, rather, the last handful of weeks have seen arguably more regulatory activity around digital currencies since the name Satoshi Nakamoto first entered the popular lexicon. And anybody whose business deals in this asset class will need to pay attention. In Congress, the committees of jurisdiction are led by energetic chairs, skeptical of digital currencies, and broadly supported of robust regulation. In June, Maxine Waters announced she is forming a cryptocurrency working group to tackle concerns about cryptocurrencies in the Congress. On the Senate side, Senator Elizabeth Warren has emerged as a leader in calling for increased oversight. In a July 7th letter to the SEC Chairman Gensler, Warren raised concern about cryptocurrency markets, saying the harm to consumers as a right of this underregulated market are real and continue to proliferate in the absence of effective SEC regulation. Gensler largely agreed with Warren and echoed his concerns during his speech at the Aspen Security Forum. He also said platforms that facilitate the buying, selling, or lending crypto should be registered and regulated under the commission unless they made an exemption and that stable coins may be securities and investment companies. That being said, Gessler indicated that the SEC lacks the authority to fill in the gaps. 
Aaron and his colleagues expect the SEC to thoughtfully pursue industry-wide rules instead of promulgating policy by enforcement actions. In the short term, he would expect official guidance on which asset class the SEC will define as security and over which platforms the SEC will claim full jurisdiction. Outside of that, the commission may seek to be equipped with additional authorities from Congress before venturing too far into the Wild West. Finally, Henry also spoke with Ted Sousen, who serves as director and AML expert for NICE Actimize. For several years, U.S. regulators have been alerting the markets of the risks involved with cryptocurrencies and the necessity to take action. This was again stated in the AML Act of 2020. Cryptocurrencies are within the scope of the Bank Secrecy Act as well. Interestingly enough, you won't specifically find the words virtual, digital, or even cryptocurrencies in these regulations. It's much more broadly stated, making reference to any value that's substitute for currency. But let there be no doubt that enforcement actions have begun. Many people today believe that cryptocurrencies fuel money laundering and other illegal activity. That is true, but those same concerns can also apply to cash. So where do we go from here, particularly in the United States? Regulations are set and the grace period are over. We've seen several enforcement actions, some sizable, and we can expect to see additional enforcement. Tighter controls will be put in place to enforce adherence to regulations, and new regulations will continue to evolve. There may always be unregistered virtual asset service providers. However, the number will continue to shrink. But one thing the markets can count on is that in the next several years, we will see stronger enforcement and unprecedented fines. If cryptocurrency firms don't become invested in strengthening anti-money laundering compliance programs, it will be to their detriment and will certainly result in a major loss of profits. More important, it could be detrimental to their reputations, which are key to successful market adoption. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So, Jay, next up, we have an article by our colleague Rick Messick, who writes on the global anti-corruption blog. And he's been following, or rather the blog's been following, this uh, scandal out of Mozambique, where uh, Mozambique uh, floated some bonds to uh, borrow some money to uh, build a tuna boat fleet. And then the um, government kept the money. And uh, it started around $150 million dollars uh, and then a $2.1 billion contract uh, involved. And it cost the uh, country of Mozambique uh, nearly $11 billion total, which was which is $403 for every man, woman, and child in the country. And that's pretty dramatic when you consider the GDP. Annual GDP is a little over $1,200 per person. 
But, uh, and Rick, or rather the GAB, the blog itself, usually posts uh, comments from uh, individuals who are watching a trial, which is currently going on. And that trial involves a civil suit by the government of Mozambique against Privet Invest, Credit Suisse, and others who were involved in the deal. Well, Privet Invest has now counterclaimed, and its defense is that the president of Mozambique was fully aware of and or participated in the corruption at the heart of the matters which are now complained of by the government of Mozambique. So this lays it bare now. The defendants have claimed that uh, they didn't engage in uh, anything that wasn't approved by the president. So the question is, will uh, Mozambique uh, continue to move forward with uh, the lawsuit? Uh, Frelimo is Mozambique's governing party, and uh, they are the entity that uh, brought the suit on behalf of the country. So it's going to be very interesting to see if they will continue to seek damages. If they do, will pro ventist uh, uh, pro-invest, rather. Uh, I know I butchered that multiple times, so I won't even try to say it again. Um, continue their defense, and will they uh, continue the lawsuit against them with their uh, nuclear defense that, hey, it can't be corruption if the president does it. What's up uh, next, Jay? Uh, this time we're going to check in with Jeffrey Kaplan, and instead of writing in his blog, he's writing in the FCPA blog, and we're going to look at five ways to make the most of your risk assessment. In a previous post uh, FCPA on the FCPA blog, Jeff Kaplan explored five ways to make the most of your risk assessments. Since then, interest in risk assessment has continued to be strong. So here are five more suggestions Jeffrey would like to share with you. Number one, include in the assessment the reasons for as well as the likelihood and impact of different types of compliance and ethics risks. This is the why dimension to the risk assessment, and it's important because different risk reasons can require different types of compliance responses. For instance, employees' failure to fully understand or appreciate a given risk may suggest the need for more or different training or communications about the risk. But for other types of risks, knowledge or appreciation is not the issue. For these risks of a knowing violation, audit or other forms of checking is generally more important. Checking can be the key to dealing with compensation or, or even revenue-related risks. And of course, in planning risk assessments, the selection of methodologies is not a one or the other nature, but good risks assessments can use more than one method, but understanding the wide dimension can help a company know where to focus efforts. Number two, use risk scenarios to identify the what, where, when, and how of risks. For instance, simply proclaiming that a company has a significant antitrust risk does not go far enough to be helpful. Using scenarios, one should also assess risks in a more regular way. What type of antitrust misconduct poses the likeliest risk for the company or her, for horizontal restraints is it bid rigging, bid pricing, boycotting, or something else? Which geographies are risky? And the same questions about specific products or service lines. What are the antitrust risks, along with the supplier distribution change? Of course, one can go too far in drilling down on risks, but at least in Jeff's experience, more companies do too little in this, in this regard. Number three, use the assessment results 
not only for traditional purposes, typically audit prior to prioritization and board program insight, but also for all the other major program elements, policies, training, communications, process controls, et cetera. This may sound obvious, but many companies fall short in this regard, even though it's right out of the sentencing guidelines. Number four, assess a sufficiently broad range of risks. For instance, many should but do not assess their insider trading risks. The same is true of economic espionage. With these and various other risks, one need not conduct the assessment with the same degree of granularity that one assesses corruption risks, but even a small amount of focus can yield real compliance and ethics value. And finally, consider combining risk and program assessments. This will not work for every company for a host of reasons. But for those that do both of these assessments based largely on employee interviews, combining the efforts can make both more efficient and effective. Tom, back to you. So sure, Jay. Uh, we have a column from or uh, article from uh, Sarah Croft, who we've not uh, had on the uh, This Week in FCPA in quite some time. But uh, she writes on the grand jury target, typically in uh, criminal matters. Um, and she's got one up today that I thought was a a good one for uh, compliance professionals to think about, and it's con- criminal conflicts of interest 101. Jay, you and I talk about conflicts of interest from time to time. I know that's a big part of what uh, AMI helps companies with, setting up conflict of interest programs and uh, overall corporate culture. But Sarah went through the elements of a, a conflict of interest case. This is targeted at federal employees. It applies to federal employees who work for an executive branch or an independent agency who personally or participate uh, or rather uh, as a government official or an employee. And then it defines conduct covered by the statute, uh, which is incredibly uh, broad, all the way from a judicial proceeding to a contract to any other, uh, any quote, other particular matter. So it's uh, pretty broad and the uh, employee has to have a financial interest in this or uh, some uh, closely related family member. It uh, can be uh, up to five years in prison, and there can be a civil fine of up to $50,000. And I really would ask the compliance professional to think through these elements because it gives you a good way to think about your uh, conflicts of interest program. And although Sarah, I think, criticizes the statute for being overly broad, uh, it can be narrowed down if you use this as a good format for doing so. So uh, welcome back to uh, this week, Sarah. Uh, good to have uh, one of your articles back on. And uh, what do you have uh, from uh, the whistleblower world, Jay? Uh, Tom, we have uh, something from, it seems like we usually connect with them each week. This comes from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, and we've got several attorneys from Wachtell Lipton, headlined by John Savarese, Ralph Levine, and Wayne M. Carlin, and they're revisiting whistleblower response procedures. Over the years, attorneys from Wachtell Lipton have underscored that effective implementation of well-designed procedures for responding to corporate crises, including for properly addressing whistleblower reports, is critically important in light of the increased governmental effort and activity in terms of the value of securing or cooperating remediation efforts. And yet another reminder of why such preparation is so vital, the SEC announced last week that with its most recent awards, 
It has paid more, and listen carefully, more than $1 billion, with a B, not million with an M, to whistleblowers since the inception of the formal whistleblower program in 2012, and that the pace of such awards in 2021 is at record levels. The proper handling of whistleblower reports is a critical skill that all well-managed companies must possess. Conversely, the mishandling of such matters frequently is a cause of serious regulatory and litigation consequences. With the momentous SEC milestone in the rearview mirror, compliance, legal, and risk management teams should take stock of whether their level of preparedness is appropriate, and these attorneys share eight best practices that I'd love to share with you. First off, establish a robust internal mechanism for reporting so employees have a clear, easy-to-follow path for bringing concerns to management. Number two, maintain similarly robust and well-publicized methods for employees to communicate concerns to the audit committee. Three, review periodically internal hotlines and other reporting channels to ensure they're up to date. Four, ensure that when internal reports are made, all requests for confidentiality by employees are scrupulously respected. Five, launch promptly any appropriately designed review aimed at getting quickly to the bottom of reported concerns. Six, make sure the internal reporting system allows investigators to communicate confidentially to any employee who reports a concern. Seven, whenever reports appear serious, immediately begin to put in place remedial steps to correct the issue. And number eight, at an appropriate point in the process, consider whether making a voluntary report to the government would be warranted and whether disclosure may be required or prudent. Tom, what do we know this week about Activision? Well, Jay, um, taking it actually in a little bit different direction because the Securities and Exchange Commission announced they were opening an investigation into the uh, uh, HR or uh, uh, human rights, uh, human relations practices by Activision. Uh, I think everyone agrees that they are absolutely abysmal. Uh, Activision lost its general counsel this week and uh, this is a PG podcast, so we probably uh, can't really say what was going on over there, although it probably rhymes with hit show. Um, but uh, Stephen Bainbridge, writing in the ProfessorBainbridge.com blog, um, subtitled Eclectic Commentary on Law, Religion, Food, and Wine, uh, no doubt a man after your own heart, Jay, said that the SEC is not an employment civil rights agency and that it's acting like so in Activision. And he uses this as an example of what he believes is overreach by the SEC, uh, uh, stating that the mission of the SEC is to protect investors, maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and facilitate capital formation. He doesn't seem to think that a company's um, employment practices, which they have hidden, for their its nefariousness and slipshoddishness should be investigated by the SEC. So I don't know if uh, Activision is going to fight this. Uh, I believe the press releases I saw were that it was cooperating uh, with the SEC investigation. I think Activision probably has some bigger problems than uh, its employment relations, but perhaps the employment relations will uh, turn out to be uh, a bigger reputational issue because of the manner in which they uh, alleged 
to have treated their female employees turns out to be correct. Jay, uh, I really wanted to end our article segment, not with an articles, but maybe asking you, what were some of your reflections on the first compliance conference that you've attended and indeed has occurred in person since uh, 2019? So, Tom, as my good friend uh, LL Cool J says, don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. I'm rocking my peers, putting suckers in fears. SCCE's Compliance and Ethics 20th Anniversary Conference proves that they're still the granddaddy of them all. As you said, I recently returned from this conference, and the ethics and compliance community needs to send kudos and a huge thank you to Katie Burke, Adam Turtletob, and Jerry Zach for planting their flag in Vegas and pulling a rabbit out of their hat by bringing this gathering together. Of course, there were considerations due to COVID-19, less in-person attendees, about a third attending in person and two-thirds attending along virtually. On the Sunday morning, Corporate Compliance Insights publisher Sarah Haddon joined me in an interactive presentation where we looked at the founding of the virtual networking platform Compliance Career Connection. And for the first time in 18 months, we had an opportunity to fist bump, shake hands, or even give each other an extremely belated and well-deserved hug. This was accomplished by choosing to wear either red, yellow, or green rubber wristbands, telling people the uh, level of touch that you are open to. While we were all about attending sessions and networking, it was really a testament to both the attendees and the staff who managed to allay their fears and attend in person. CCC followed up on mine and Sarah's session with a happy hour on Monday night, and the networking continued throughout the weekend and into the week. On Tuesday, I led a group of musically attuned attendees to a dueling piano bar at the New York, New York Hotel. While we sang with the piano man and did not stop believing, I'd like to leave you with one of the evening's highlights. Hands touching hands, reaching out, touching me and touching you. Sweet Caroline, good times never seem so good. So we have managed to meet despite and maybe in spite of this pandemic, it was heartened by the mask. I personally was heartened by the mask that people wore in conference room, in hotels, in restaurants, and even on Las Vegas Boulevard. The 20th annual SCCE Compliance and Ethics Institute shows us that we can once again come together. Now the trick is how many other conferences will be able to pick up the baton and continue with the momentum. Uh, so, Jay, now we're off to podcasts and events. Uh, and are you stressed out, Jay? No. Should I be? Well, uh, then perhaps you should alert the rest of the compliance community that you're not, <clears throat> because CCI is surveying stress and compliance. Uh, Henry Kronk, who we uh, had an article from this week, wrote about it in CCI, and the uh, links to the survey are there. Uh, uh, Rather, today, I uh, premiere my latest podcast in the Compliance Podcast Network, and it's a really interesting series, Jay. Our friend David Simon, partner at Foley and Lardner in Milwaukee, is going back to college or back to university. Uh, I won't give his precise age, but I will just say 50s. And uh, he's going back to get his MBA. And he is going to catalog and um, his journey at, at a Yank at Oxford. 
Now, he's not moving to Oxford to get his, his MBA. It's not an executive MBA. It's a full MBA. So part of his classes will be virtual, but he will be in Oxford, I think, uh, two weeks every quarter. And he's going to report on what it's like to go back to college. It's, it's kind of funny because his two boys are now in college. So their dad and son are trading college stories. I can't imagine how that would go. But uh, we're going to we're going to take a look at his journey. And uh, this opening episode, David really talks about his insatiable curiosity, how he's always wanted an MBA. Of course, he's a, a lawyer by professional training, so he didn't have a lot of the quantitative skills. He's a little leery of statistics and a few things that you MBA boys have. But uh, David's a great guy. He's a great part of the compliance community. He's been uh, he's had an FCPA practice for uh, many years. And so I know you're going to enjoy a yank at Oxford. Um, Jay, I don't know if you've had a chance to check out uh, the latest offering from the Compliance Podcast Network, Effing Argentina. But Greg Greenberg, who I work with at the C-Suite Network, he's a COO, uh, uh, is a screenwriter or playwright, I should say, not a screenwriter. He also writes uh, some novels from time to time. And he put together 11 tales of exasperation. Uh, the first one I know he will uh, relate to because it was the dreaded parent meeting night at uh, <laughs> your child's elementary school. So he wrote about that, but he wrote about it from the perspective of a newly divorced dad. Today, he explains why he has the title effing Argentina and uh, or rather in the latest podcast. And it's, of course, around Argentina uh, defaulting for the fourth or fifth time this century uh, on its national debt and obligations. And he explains what that's like when uh, a friend shows up at your door and asks for a, a $500 billion loan uh, and, and they will take a personal check. Um, Jay, you know, we've had uh, some successful uh, situations in your uh, neck of the woods in Hollywood where a big time star goes behind the camera to direct well, uh, we have you going behind the mic to host the podcast. Could you tell us, uh, you know, what was it uh, Bill Shatner on Star Trek V? Was it Leonard Neboy on Star Trek IV? Was it Orson Welles? Uh, what was it like to, to go to the other side of the mic and interview two of our good friends, Lisa Bethlantini-Walker and Steph uh, Cheetah, about their new book, Raise Your Game, Not Your Voice, that you um, – Hosted on integrity through compliance. Tom, it might be more like Kevin Costner with Dances with Wolves, or maybe I busted out my blue makeup and did Mel Gibson in Braveheart. Either way, I felt that I've been uh, kneeling at the foot of the master for all these years that I could wing it and go out there. And what was my life uh, boat there were two good friends. Lisa Beth Lentini Walker and Steph Sheeta. You spoke to them about their great new book. And uh, I also had an opportunity to kind of double up. So in this first um, segment of a two-part podcast, uh, I speak to Lisa Beth and Steph about how they got together and how they came about coming up with the book, Raise Your Game, Not Your Voice. Then we go in and we preview four chapters. And then the second part, which will run two weeks from this Wednesday, we'll look at the end of the book. But um, it's uh, it was just a, a lot of fun. And they made it easy because they had all the answers. And all I had to do was uh, toss off the questions. So uh, 
maybe there will be more hosting duties in my future. But thanks for all the help and support you've given me, Tom. Well, Jay, there's an early rumor that you've been nominated as uh, Best New Podcast Host for this year's Webby Awards. So uh, there's a lot of buzz in the uh, podcast <laughs> community about that new guy. So uh, we're going to be interested to see where uh, where that goes and, uh, you know, is New York and London in your future as well. Uh, could you tell us about an upcoming K2 Integrity event, Jay? Yeah, K2 Integrity is partnering with the DIFC Academy for a webinar called Virtual Assets and FATF Guidelines, a Risk-Based Approach for Financial Institutions. This will be on September 28th. And as always in the show notes, we link to registration and information. Tom, what's happening with Converge 21? Converge 21, uh, I think the uh, top compliance virtual event of the year uh, certainly from 2020, is going forward on October 12 and 13. I'm doing a series of uh, pre- uh, preview podcasts of the speakers involved. And the first one went up on Thursday. The second one went up today. Uh, Wendy Badger uh, talks about uh, whistleblowing. And uh, Philip Winterburn has a really interesting panel on uh, AI and ethics. So I'm going to be uh, posting those daily over the next uh, 10 days or so. But uh, Converge 21, the virtual conference, uh, the, can't beat the price. It's free. I've linked to or we've linked to registration and information uh, in the show notes. Uh, Ethisphere's World's Most Ethical Company Awards for 2022 are open for submission. They're uh, open until November 12th, and we've linked to the application process. Uh, so if you are in the corporate world, you really should uh, consider uh, applying for the 2022 World's Most Ethical Awards. And then, uh, Jay, I'm not sure if you've heard, but uh, my book, The Compliance Handbook Second Edition, has been released. It's a, a feature of breaking news. Uh, check out the breaking news news feature. Uh, I've linked to that in the show notes. I recently had a webinar uh, around it in uh, Brazil. Uh, Isabel Franco and some of her colleagues were kind enough to host me. So uh, I really enjoyed that. I've got uh, some more Information coming out of the book over uh, October and November, uh, I humbly submit to you it's the best single-volume uh, compliance handbook there is. Uh, as Matt Kelly says, you know, it's really, Tom, just the Bible. So um, uh, where are we uh, – where can we be reached, Jay? Well, as everyone knows, you, Tom Fox, is and are the voice of compliance. You can be reached at – tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And as always, uh, I'm Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor, and I can be reached at the letter J, R-O-S-E-N, at affiliatedmonitors.com. And um, I'd like to have a special shout-out to uh, Christy Grant Hart. She's been um, stepping in on a couple times when I was not able to uh, do This Week with Tom, and it was also great to see Christy and Jonathan and a lot of our friends from Spark Communications in person. So uh, with that, I'd like to thank you for joining us in this week in FCPA episode 270 for the week ending September 24th. The heading to October, is there another World Series championship for the Houston Astros? We don't know, but we'll be watching with bated breath. So thank you for joining us. 
We appreciate you spending part of your week and your weekend with us. And we look forward to speaking to you next week when we take a look at This Week and FCPA. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I hope you will check out the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, A Yank in Oxford, where we detail the journey of David Simon, partner at Foley and Lardner, on his quest to get an MBA from literally the best university in the world. Check it out on the Compliance Podcast Network. Also, are you exasperated? Well, check out Effing Argentina, a podcast series of 11 tales of exasperation in American life with author of Effing Argentina and my co-host, Greg Greenberg. I know you will enjoy it. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.